Should I, should I have a good cry? Should I just let it out? So overcoming emotions to the point of saying, well, I'm never going to have them or I don't want them. I think actually is a version of repression. Imagine not being able to, to use your hands. That is scary, you know? To be really happy all the time, I don't think you'd call it happiness. I think you'd call it present. Hi everyone, welcome back to Refreshingly Human with myself, Hannah Pillow. This has been quite a season, all about emotions. We spoke about sadness, fear, shame, happiness, love, and it just got really deep. I'm so excited today because we have back on the show, Sarah. Hi, Sarah. Welcome back. Hi. How have you been? Yeah, pretty good actually. Um, I was I was just saying I've I've had a lot on. It's been really busy, which you think with lockdown restarting, you'd everything would calm down again. But I swear I just get busier. I know it's crazy, right? It's it's insane. And I think I don't know about you, but I kind of feel like as this year's ending, the everything about this year is just weighing heavy on my shoulder, and I just feel so drained all the time. Yeah, I am. Um, I'm with you on that one. I think again with like the weather changing and you just can't get out as much. And I just, I am feeling like more sluggish as well. Yeah. Sluggish. And uh, I, I did a meditation last night and I was actually like, like screaming in my brain. Like, you know, like I want to scream out loud, but like, I felt like my whole body was screaming in my meditation. It was so weird. <laughs> did, you're just going to notice that yeah meditation just, yeah it just everything just comes to the surface when you meditate doesn't it but yeah anyway so um so for all your listeners out there um at the end of every season i do a live q a on facebook or on instagram where i'll answer any of your questions that are based on my own experiences and um i'm not an expert so i've brought you an expert so sarah is here and you guys have sent in your questions and she's going to tackle them so we're going to be tackling some questions throughout the show uh sarah's done a lot of homework on this thank you so much for that sarah and we're also going to be looking at the emotions that we've covered this season and tying those to the theories that sarah has um spoken about in the first episode of the season so if you haven't checked that out yet you can backtrack and find it on all podcast platforms or if wherever you're listening to this right now. So yeah, Sarah, would we, uh, would you like to jump into it? Would we, would you like to start with the first question? Let's start with the first question. That yeah. seems like a good place to start. I think so. Let's do that. So um, the first question we were asked was where do you draw the line between overcoming your negative feelings and repressing it? Oh, deep question. <laughs> I would say that if you are repressing your emotions, you're never going to overcome them. But at the same time, I don't think emotions are there to be overcome. Um, so all of our emotions, as we said, like right from that first episode, they're all natural, normal things that we feel. They're there for a reason. Um, they're there to tell us something, to communicate something about maybe what we want to do. So I really hate the word overcome actually so if you overcome something it kind of implies that like you conquered it like oh I've done that mountain like that that's over now so I'll never feel sad again I'll never feel happy again I'll never feel um, <laughs> anxious again or shame again or whatever it might be and I'm like well hang on a minute if you overcame it and you're never going to feel it again aren't you worse off for that true that's really true. And that, that really just reminds me of the anger episode that I did um, where I spoke about how I befriended my anger and that obviously I still feel angry because, hey, I'm human. <laughs> it still happens. But now because I have befriended it, I kind of understand where it's coming from, what it's trying to tell me and how to, how to manage it and how to, how to express it in a healthy way. Um, so yeah, I, 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 I think that's a really good point. Uh, it's not about overcoming. Maybe it's more about learning. I think it's, yeah, I think we've got to come to this place of being okay with our emotions being there and sometimes even utilizing them to our advantage. They can help us out. 
um, you know, again, anger, I know we didn't speak about anger actually in our episode, but anger for me, it's often very right that it's there. I mean, anger can be destructive, anger can get us very stuck, but actually anger as an emotion is just, it's just plain human experience. Mm -hmm. And if we don't get angry about things, actually things don't change. Anger is quite motivated to say, this isn't fair. I want something to be different here. I want to make a change, whether that be like in my life or in like society, for example. <laughs> Sometimes we need to be angry and sometimes we need to be anxious and sometimes we need to be happy or scared or embarrassed. So overcoming emotions to the point of saying, well, I'm never going to have them or I don't want them, I think actually is a version of repression. Wow. Wow, that, that's deep. And I love what you just said about anger because you pretty much summed up my entire anger episode there <laughs> where, where actually I spoke about how I repressed anger for all of my life. And then it kind of like burst out of me. And it was, um, it was a message in my whole life trying to, to motivate me to change things. But because I wasn't listening to it and I was repressing it, I never got the message until like, it kind of like was like busting in my face. <laughs> yeah. yeah that, that's so cool. All right. Interesting. Um, so let's look at the next question. How important is it to accept our feelings versus being a productive human being? Okay. Um. So the thing that actually struck me about this question was versus. I know, right? Like, why does it have to be a versus question? Why can't we battle? <laughs> accept, accept things and be productive maybe at the same time. So I, it really implied to me that um, I don't know whether or not this is what the, the question asker kind of intended but it really implied to me that it, they think that if they accept their emotions they're possibly going to be like incapacitated by them like if I accept that I'm anxious or if I accept that I'm sad that's it I'm going to drown in it mm. um, and actually I don't think that's the case so there's just this little that that versus to me just puts in that little bit of fear like maybe emotions are scary maybe they're not something I really want to have too much of because um, to me acceptance means that you have choices if you actually accept like, there's a difference between acceptance and resignation people often use them interchangeably like oh I've just resigned to it it's not the same as I've accepted it um, so if you actually accept your emotions that they're there they're present they're trying to tell you something then actually you can choose what you want to do from there you can choose how you want to act about that um, and you can then make choices about what do I want my life to look like? Like if this anxiety, for example, is going to be with me, do I want to make sure that I never leave the house? Is that what I'm going to do in order to try and maybe never feel this? Or actually, if it's going to be there anyway, what do I still want my life to be about? What's going to make my life a fulfilling experience, even if there are periods of sadness or anxiety or fear along the way? Hmm. So when we truly accept our emotions, we're going to be super productive. Um, I actually also hate being productive. I think there's way too much emphasis put on being productive. Like, why can't I just sit around sometimes and do nothing? Uh, but when we accept our emotions, we get to make choices. We get to say, these are the things that are going to be really meaningful in my life. And I'm going to go towards them, whether that anxiety, for example, is there or not. Um, and I think we said something about this, actually. Uh, last time I spoke to you, we were sort of saying, like, everything you want's on the other side of fear. Like, if you want something, you're going to have to go through that emotion. You know, if you want that job, you've got to sit through the job interview. Yeah. Um, so I think it's about remembering you. We can actually accept our emotions and be productive. It, yeah. It's not one or the other. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I think that for me in my personal life, that every time I acknowledged my emotions and I sat with them, I was able to be even more productive. And like you say, use those emotions to motivate me and to make decisions. Um, I think like, I'm just thinking about an example in my life right now, because, oh my God, there's so many right now because emotions are heightened <laughs> at this year end, this mm -hmm. shitty, shitty year end. <laughs> you know, yep. There's so much of emotions going on. And um, there's, there's a certain emotion I'm not very comfortable with. And that's sadness. Um, I hate sadness. And I, I think I told you I hate shame as well. Mm. Um, but I think for me, it's sadness is an emotion I don't know how to feel. That's a weird thing to say, but I don't know how to feel it. And it's something that I, I fight feeling it. 
And I also don't stay sad for too long because I'm very uncomfortable being sad. And there's so many things in my life right now that are making me sad. And I am sad. And I'm, I, I know I've been fighting that feeling for such a long time because I don't want to feel sad, <laughs> but I am. Um, and I think that like right now in my life, I'm trying to figure out what is, what, where's the sadness coming from? What do I, what can I do to change it? And also how do I just feel sad for a little bit? Like, should I, should I have a good cry? Should I just let it out and then move on? Is that the Mm -hmm. next step? So I think that they are emotions that all of us are not comfortable feeling, whether it's Mm -hmm. fear, anxiety, shame, sadness, there is maybe all the emotions or maybe there's one emotion that we just have to befriend a little bit more than the others. (laughs) And I know mine's a sadness. (laughs) For sure. It's sadness is something that's really difficult to live alongside rather than try and push away or get rid of. Um, And our society generally tells us not to be sad. Mm. You know, if you say, you know, in the nicest possible way, if you say to a friend, Oh, I'm just having a bit of a bad day. The first thing they tend to do is try and cheer you up, mm. right? They step in and they sort of go like, "Oh, it's not that bad," or "Oh, tell me about it." And it's a lovely thing for them to do, but the the aim is always to get rid of it, yeah. Rather than maybe we just need to be here at the moment. Maybe this is where we're at. Maybe I can still choose to do things. I'm not necessarily gonna, you know, sit in bed for for days on end mm-hmm. um, because I feel sad. But maybe I need to you know, shorten that to-do list. Maybe I need to give myself a little bit less so I can allow space for my sadness while still getting some of the things done that I need to get done. Of course, Um, yeah. Like one of my self-help methods when I'm feeling overwhelmed with any emotion is to take a Hannah day. I call it a Hannah day. And I just like, um, I won't work. I won't do any podcasting. Um, I generally go for like a very long walk. I do a very long meditation. I have a hot bath. It's just all about me and just recharging myself. And that meditation really helps me because it brings everything to the surface. You feel what you need to feel. And Mm. you can like, I guess get on with life after that, you know, because I think you have to give your body space to feel what it needs to feel instead of not, instead of trying to chug it down. Mm. Yeah. So that, that helps me. Um, and I love what you just said about, um, people wanting to make you feel better all the time because there's like, um, recently I had an opportunity at work that was supposed to be an opportunity, but it turned out that they made a mistake and I was so mad with them. I know it's crazy crazy um and i know the moment i told one friend this um her first reaction was um do you want to come over for a cup of tea and um bitch about it to me and i love that because that just gave me that space you know and then the other some other people were like oh you could do this you could do that and i'm like i don't want to do anything right now i just want to process this (laughs) like you know (laughs) i don't i don't want to fight this or get over this maybe once I processed it, I will tackle it, but I don't want to right now. <laughs> yeah, you need that space to actually understand everything that's just happened rather yeah. than jumping into to problem solving, which a lot of us do. I, you know, I do it all the time. <laughs> Jump in with, oh, you could do this and this and this. Because I think I'm being helpful, but actually I'm not. <laughs> and I need to slow down myself. You know, I'm a therapist. You know, I'm really good at kind of sitting with it and going like, let's explore that. But in my own life, friend gives me a problem and I'm so quick to just jump in with have you tried have you tried have you tried Mm -hmm. and actually we all need that reminder to slow down and be in the moment with it Mm, yeah and I think it's um like uh, I've I've worked um at some call centers I don't want to say which ones but they they kind of train you in the art of listening instead of uh, reacting uh or advising and I think that's such a useful skill that I think we all should actually learn, like if if they could teach that in schools, it's such a useful thing to learn how to do because we don't know how to listen and it causes a lot more problems when we're not actually listening to what someone is saying or just giving them that space to talk or to express Mm. their emotions and without trying to insert ourselves into it. 
But yeah. Um, yeah, I thought it would be a nice break now to discuss one of the episodes. Um, so I thought maybe we could discuss a little bit about the fear episode. Um, so you said you listened to it and you've mm-hmm. heard the stories. Um, did you find any link to what we discussed about fear in the first episode? The one that stood out for me was the the guy talking about um, having a panic attack in a plane. Yeah, that um, was Aiden. Yeah. And all of the kind of physical um, sensations that he got and, and some of the things he was sort of like, my hands went white and I couldn't feel my fingers and, um, and things like that. And I was thinking about, back to my saber-toothed tiger that we talked about, I think, in my, <laughs> my episode. Um, I was thinking about how much our bodies respond, mm. again, to fear. And everybody knows the really basic ones, like my heart beat really fast or I had butterflies or um, like I was hyperventilating. But adrenaline, it has so many different side effects that people kind of don't realise, which then you kind of get attributed to these kind of what sound like weirder symptoms. Um, So one of the things that adrenaline does is it opens up the sort of uh, the airways in your lungs. So you can actually breathe more deeply you can get more air into your lungs but the problem is that you're breathing so fast that he's absolutely right you get this imbalance of oxygen and carbon dioxide into your bloodstream and that can make you feel a bit woozy and a bit kind of dizzy so while it's opening up the capacity of your lungs the other thing it does is it shrinks um the or tightens up maybe your blood vessels so it's a vasoconstrictor so it means it tightens up all of your blood vessels Um, and what that's going to do is it's going to mean that there's less blood flow to places that already have very tiny capillaries like your hands and feet like your extremities right so when those things tighten up you're getting less blood flow into that area of the body um and it's not going to go blue and fall off or anything there's less (laughs) There's less blood flow in there. So the side effect of that is going to be, it's going to look white because there's less blood um, or it's going to go pale, depending on your skin tone, I suppose. Um, It's going to go pale because there's less blood flow into the area. Um, And it's going to go cold because your blood helps regulate your temperature. So if there's less blood, it's going to feel colder. And then if you're getting less blood flow, you're going to start to get pins and needles. You're going to get that tingly feeling that he described. Um, and he said it even moved to his feet as well. So it's the same thing, though, with regulating the blood flow around our body, um, because as far as his body was concerned, he needed to do something. He needed to try and fight the plane or run away from the plane or whatever. So we're diverting blood flow to places that really need it, like these big muscles, like um, your big thigh muscles, your big arm muscles, because they would be the ones doing the work if you were trying to fight off some kind of attack, or some kind of threat. Um, you know, you're not trying to do a very delicate cross stitch. You don't need it in your hands and feet right now. <laughs> Does that make sense? Totally. And I'm actually so glad that that's the story that stuck out to you because that's the one I was actually going to ask you about, um, in fact. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, because I cannot imagine the fear. And like, I, I think it's kind of like a reaction on a reaction because you, you you're scared about something on the plane and your body reacts, but then your body's reacting to the reaction because imagine not being able to, to use your hands. That is scary, you know? So like, I think he also said it, it's fear upon fear and Mm -hmm. it's just adding to that. So I'm like, I've had a few panic attacks in my life, but nothing where I couldn't move my hands and feet. I think that that's severe. Um, and I know that there are some, there are advice, there is advice out there on how to handle a panic attack. But I think when you're actually in that moment, it's a lot mm-hmm. more difficult to do that, especially if like for him in that situation, being on a plane alone, going to a foreign country where you don't speak the language, it's just adding to everything. Is there anything that you could advise in those moments or if someone had to be in that kind of a situation? So when you're in sort of peak panic attack there is nothing rational you can do you cannot talk yourself out of it at that point 
Um, so I think I mentioned um, in my episode how like our, the rational bit of our brain, it's not working in the middle of a real kind of life and death situation. So sort of saying, oh, I could talk myself down. I could remind myself that things are okay. Or um, I could say to myself, this is just hyperventilation. Like you're not, you can't do it. <laughs> it's biology. You can't, it's not a flaw. It's not, um, it's not oh, only anxious people can't talk themselves down. Nobody can. Brains don't work that way. So you can't fight biology. Mm. Um, so when you're in peak panic attack, you can you can try and he couldn't do this one. You can try and burn off some of the energy. Now, he couldn't do this, um, but you could try and use up some of the energy. It's not going to necessarily make it stop, but it's going to make it a bit more tolerable. Mm. so I often say to people like go for a run go for a walk do jumping jacks in your front room as long as you don't live in a flat um I often say to people, put like your most guilty pleasure music on um in the kitchen and like just dance around with the mop anything oh. to just get your body moving and try use up some of that energy and um, lots of people do kind of paper bags and kind of um you know try and regulate their breathing they put a lot of effort into trying to regulate their breathing um actually the reason i like the, the put your guilty pleasure music on in the kitchen is because people sing sing automatically regulates your breathing without you thinking about it wow and it's easier than saying i've got to breathe in for three seconds i've got to breathe out for three <laughs> seconds um so if you've got a favorite breathing exercise please rock on with that if that's something that works for you um, but for some people it won't and it is just try and use up that energy to make it a bit more tolerable the other thing for him unfortunately he couldn't really do much of either of those being <laughs> on the plane is a, the peak of a panic attack cannot and it does not last more than about 20 minutes which feels like forever when you're in the middle of it but you've got to remember you your body doesn't have infinite energy supplies it will run out of energy and the effect of the adrenaline will wear off so if you are really at the top of it there might not be a huge amount you can do other than wait it out it will come down you will feel absolutely exhausted and i'm not saying this is a pleasant experience but it won't hurt you having this doesn't damage your body in any way a panic attack doesn't do you any harm it feels awful i'm not not discrediting that they suck but it's not really going to do you any harm that like you're built for this. You know, your heart can manage this. Your breathing rate can manage this. You will be okay at the end of it. And maybe that's all you might be able to tell yourself is like in 20 minutes, I'm going to feel differently, mm. but there is no fancy trick to talk yourself down. Cause once you've passed a certain point, you can't talk yourself out of it because the bit of your brain that could have done it is offline. It's not working. <laughs> offline I like that (laughs) (laughs) and it's so interesting advice about moving around because like I've I've often been told the opposite and I've been like I've always tried the opposite of trying to like like you said the breathing exercises and um and it does it does it does help me um but I can also see that it probably I think the last time I had a panic attack I um I did the breathing exercises but then I had to walk home afterwards and that walk home actually did I think did me the the most um you know it really helped me calm down the most yeah the yeah the most physical symptom I've ever felt and I'm not sure if this was anxiety or shock and I'm not like I don't know what the distinct difference is here but there was a there was a time in my life where I was well I guess I kind of still am but I was like there was a lot my family didn't know about me and I thought I thought that they didn't know this stuff. And then one day somebody told me that um, these aunts, I call them the FBI aunts, they found out all these things about me. And she was just telling me all the things that they knew that I thought they didn't. And they were big things for me at that time. And I remember it was the first time in my life that I actually got physically dizzy. And I kind of like, things went black. And I was like, almost like going to faint, but I, I just had to sit down. I was the first time I had such a physical response to something. So I think, I think that was more shock, right? Probably, but it's a very similar reaction in the body. Um, You know, people say, oh, what's the difference between like shock or a panic attack? There's really not a lot when it comes down to the physiology of it. Um, You you know, your head starts to spin, you start to feel dizzy. 
um, it's quite common your pupils kind of dilate which makes everything feel a bit like oh, what's going on um, you might get uh, like butterflies or you might feel quite sick um, and again these all of these things they feel really uncomfortable but they are actually your body trying to save your life it's doing stuff to divert blood flow where it's most needed to get you the energy where you most need it um, so that you would be able to fight off whatever the threat is it just doesn't understand that some threats are inside our heads. <laughs> yeah, it's like it was draining the blood from my head to what? Punch somebody? <laughs> yeah. I'm just going to interrupt this episode to let you guys know that on Friday, the 11th of December, that's Friday, the 11th of December at 7.30pm British Summer Time. I will be doing a live Q&A on Instagram and I am open to answering any questions based on the season. If you want to get to know more about my stories, uh, anything more about how I process emotions or how I've come along or how I'm still coming along, please join me on Friday, the 11th of December at 7.30pm on Instagram, which is the Refreshingly Human podcast account on Instagram. See you there. Anyway, I think that this is a good time for the next question. Um, so, because it is about anxiety anyway. So it's like, how do we know if it is an anxious feeling that we have or an anxiety attack? So an anxious feeling and an anxiety. And I think we've already kind of covered this in, in talking about Aiden's physical responses. Maybe we could talk a little bit about what is an anxious feeling then. So I tend to think of anxious feelings as just being like a lower level of like a full-blown panic attack. So there is a bit of a gradient to it. You know, there's that I've got a job interview and I've got the butterfly feeling in my tummy um, kind of feeling. And then there's I'm hyperventilating, my heart rates are going, you know, 10 to the dozen. And, I, I, you know, I can't feel my fingers and I feel really sick. Um, so I think there is a bit of a gradient to it. So somebody may be feeling anxious and that may, but that will probably still feel surmountable. You know, they can continue with their day. They're just feeling a bit on edge or like you say, maybe they're going for a job interview and it's a bit like, oh, I just need to get through this part of it. Um, if you're having an anxiety attack or maybe a panic attack, you're probably much less likely to feel that you can do something. Mm. Um, so often when people start to hyperventilate or they feel like their heart is pounding, they may feel that the only thing they can do is kind of retreat. They need to escape the situation. Um, they wouldn't really feel like they're going to be able to continue with it. So I think sometimes it's 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 not necessarily about how the feeling feels in the body. It's about how it affects your ability to do something. And this actually ties in a little bit with what Aidan was saying, I think, about I don't like it when it affects my actions, I think mm. he said. Yeah, um, of course. And I think that I think that might be the, the differentiation is that when we feel maybe a little bit anxious, we probably also still feel usually able to continue to do something or work towards maybe solving the problem. I think once we're caught in a an anxiety attack or a panic attack, we could have completely consumed by that, and we can't really continue with whatever it was we were planning. Mm. Could um, so could there also be like something in between? Um, so, for example, we have anxious feelings that, like you say, are resolvable; uh, we can get through them, and then we have the anxiety attack where it's next level; it's affecting our day to day. Could we have? Um, I think like. And I think this is something I have had in the past is severe anxiety without the anxiety attack. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm just thinking like when you say things that affect your life, there was a period in my life where my anxiety was so bad um, that even something as simple as going uh, like I used to drive every day to work. As just something as simple as driving, I would think like 10,000 things in my head before leaving the house. Like, oh my God, where am I going to park? How am I going to park? What if I don't get parking? And it would just like really affect my ability to just live a day-to-day -day life. Um, but there was no physical response to it. Not, yeah. not, not yet anyways. <laughs> yeah. You were probably carrying some physical response. My guess is you probably had like muscle tension or you oh, did yeah. have a bit of a, a bit of a heart rate. Going migraines. Up, like you say, yeah, migraines. So sort of like physical symptoms of more like a chronic stress rather than that peak of stress that you'd get in an anxiety mm. or in a panic attack. Um, so 
if, if I'm coming at this from my, my therapist head and like a diagnosis type place, I think everybody has anxiety. It's a really normal emotion. And then you get people who have panic attacks and even up to the point of panic disorder where um, it's not just that they, they have these attacks. It's also that they panic about having these attacks and that causes more attacks. Mm. Um, and then there's sort of a, it's not a middle ground between the other two, but there's a separate kind of diagnostic criteria uh, uh, sorry, label called generalized anxiety disorder, which doesn't quite mean I just have general anxiety. I tend to think of it as a worry disorder. Mm. The people who present with this, they talk a lot about like, but what if this happened? What if that happened? What if that happened? And that can be completely, it, it can affect every area of their life. It can, it can take over. Mm. And like you say, they might not actually have a panic attack. Um, but they might spend hours, hours and hours and hours a day trying to solve worries that they have, trying to think through every possible outcome or scenario. Um, because if they can just plan it out, like nothing can surprise them. Um, and it can it can take over your life and stop you actually doing a, an awful lot because you're so busy trying to solve stuff that's not even happened yet. No, for sure. And I also just want to stress to to the listeners out there that this was a very, like, I think I was actually writing about it in my, my novel recently. And I just, like, I think I didn't realize what an intensely stressful time of my life that was to mm. have caused me to get to that point. And I did have to seek medical help and I did have to seek therapy and I am a lot better now. So, you know, there is hope if you, if you get the right tools, if you get the right help. Um, there is hope and it does get better. It can get better. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So the next question is people say we need balance uh, and having too much of something is not good. Is it not okay to feel happy all the time? I, I just want to say something before you answer this. I don't think that it's not okay. I think that it's literally impossible to be happy all the time. And there's my answer. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I suppose it comes back to what we said before around, um, like, how do you define happiness? Are we talking about like elated joy or are we talking about contentment as an overall kind of umbrella with pockets of other things going on? And I think you're absolutely right. I don't think anybody feels happiness literally 100% of the time it's impossible all emotions are transient they all come and go um and to be in one emotional state literally constantly I don't I I agree with you I don't think it's possible I think that would be very strange so I was trying to think about like who might have asked this question um and I and I was thinking actually even if they are happy or content, let's say, across their life, yeah, absolutely, nothing wrong with that. But I doubt they don't have any other emotions. You know, if we put them in a job interview, they're going to feel nervous. If somebody pushes them in front of them in a queue or cuts them up in the car, they're going to feel angry. Um, They might feel embarrassed if they made a mistake. But they may have like an underlying bedrock of contented happiness. That's wonderful. Please keep living your life and embracing your other emotions as they come up. Um, There's nothing wrong with feeling contented and and maybe having just that general belief that things are going to work out it's a really nice place to be for sure um, but no nobody literally feels happy 100 percent of the time like that elated feeling um, and the, the thing is that like uh, i know like from my own experience that life changes all the time you know we, things are changing like i know there were periods of my life where i was like content and happy like you just described for long periods of my of time but then things change and i think like the human body um has a reaction to change that i think is a bit resilient we, we can be a bit resilient to things changing especially if we're very comfortable where we are and that kind of will disrupt your happiness and i think that it's it's difficult to say that we're going to live our whole life in the state of contentment without dealing with any changes or any difficulties, any sudden debts around us, any loss. Things are going to happen. Life is constant. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. But everything's going to ebb and flow over time. 
yeah and and um so yeah i mean i think that it might be really really nice to and i think it's i think it's also kind of like this cookie dangling cookie that we are fed that we need to be happy all the time but we don't and mm. we can we can celebrate our other emotions as well um it, I, I don't know i don't know if it would be nice to be happy all the time actually in my happiness episode um i do speak about have you watched the good place uh, sarah I love the good place. Yay, I love the good place too. So I actually use that analogy. So in at the end, spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't watched it. Um but at the end they they actually get to the good place and you see how everyone's mind turns to mush because they get everything they want all the time, constant happiness. So in in my happiness episode I ask the question. I say imagine if you were happy all the time, do you think you would be the same person you are? today if you had constant happiness and always had everything you want would you would you still be the same will you have the same values will you have the same experiences would you be as rounded as a person as you are or would you be the zombie from the good place <laughs> <laughs> i think it's really funny because people kind of frame happiness it's like oh if i had everything i wanted you know i'd be happy but the thing is if you were if you were happy you wouldn't want anything yeah, exactly. There'd be no motivating factor for us to move forward or to to grow. No room to grow. That's so true. Yeah. Imagine if you've read every single book in the world, and <laughs> you you knew every single thing there is to know. You know, if you, <laughs> I think you'd have to to come to the point um, where you'd to be really happy all the time. I don't think you'd call it happiness. I think you'd call it present. I think, you know, like you were talking about your meditation, the, the point is to bring yourself into the present. Mm. Um, and that would mean actually other emotions would come up and other things would be there. Um, but you're looking for that sort of space of, I can be completely present with who I am and I can be happy with that. Mm. Um, and that would probably be a very nice place to be. But you wouldn't want anything once you're there because actually you're content. You have everything you need. Um, so, yeah, we wouldn't want if we were happy. And I think that would be quite a nice place to be. But we're not designed that way. We <laughs> always want. We always want more. Uh, it, I guess that kind of term uh, ties in with like Buddhism as well. And the, mm. the whole. Um, yeah, I mean essentially making ourselves i don't i don't know i don't know how to say this in the best way but making ourselves not very human i think <laughs> to not want anything <laughs> yeah. we're hardwired to want we're hardwired to want more um, and it, it, it's it's evolution again like the more resources i have the more likely i am to survive you know more mm. food i can get hold of and, and that just ripples out <laughs> Thing else that we are, we're able to get hold of, you know, in our privileged position of living in more toilet paper. Country. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'll be safer. I'll be happier if I, you know, and advertising's bought into that. You know, if I if I oh show you what your life might look like, then you're going to want to buy this product. So yeah. they actually make us. They they. It's not just about showing us the happy that you might get from buying whatever product it is. What they're really doing is trying to make you unhappy with your current situation. So you'll buy this thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, happiness, I is, happiness is an act of rebellion. <laughs> I love that. Um, and I love that you mentioned the advertisements because I don't actually watch like a lot of TV. I watch a lot of Netflix. So I don't actually see advertisements, but like when my husband and I are on holiday and we have the TV on in the background, like at the hotel or something, um, I was so fascinated to see how COVID has become an advertising mechanism, you know, like these antibacterial sprays are using COVID to sell their product. And I was like, that was like pretty fast turnaround <laughs> for these adverts to come about. It's, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, let's go to the last question because this will help us to also discuss the last episode. Oh, sorry. There's two more questions, but this, let's take the next one because yeah. it's tied in with the next episode. And it's what is the difference between shame and remorse? And actually that was my question. <laughs> so shame is that state of 
it being about you. So shame comes up in terms of thoughts like I'm bad, you know, or I'm disgusting or I'm worthless. It's it's those kinds of thoughts. It labels the whole person in their entirety as being bad or shameful in some way. And you can have shame without remorse. You can have remorse without shame. So they are different. Um, remorse is a sense of having maybe done something wrong and feeling maybe guilty about it. You might feel shame about it, um, but remorse also comes with an action. So remorse wants to make amends in some way. If you're remorseful, you're trying to say sorry. You're trying to say, I'm upset that I did this. Um, I'm sorry that I may have hurt you or somebody else. So remorse comes with like that action on top. Right. It's not just about feeling I'm a terrible person. It might be about saying, I made a mistake. I messed up here. And I don't like how that went. I want to, I want to apologize or I want to make amends in some way. Mm. Um, and remorse is really helpful um, for our social relationships or relationships with other people, because it allows us to, it taps into empathy. It taps into this person might not be happy with what I did. Oh, hang on a minute. If I felt that way, I would want that person to apologize. And it's really good at, helping us kind of continue to have these relationships with other people because it means we can back down or apologize for whatever it might be. Shame, shame doesn't, shame just talks at us, mm. right? It just tells us how awful we are um, or how silly or um, disgusting or whatever it is mm. that it might be. Um, and it doesn't necessarily make us do anything. There's no necessary, there's not always a necessary action that goes with shame. Mm. Um, in fact, with shame, people tend to actually punish themselves more. Um, whereas with remorse, again, people try and make amends. Hmm. Um, so shame, as we said before, you know, you said it's not your favourite emotion. Yeah, because it, it's not a nice one. Um, and, and it's really damaging. Hmm. Um, you know, high levels of shame, as I said before, they've been associated with lots of different uh, mental health conditions like across the board. Hmm. Whereas remorse is really helpful. Remorse says hey, you, you messed up, but you can also do something about it. Yeah. And I thought that that's something that needed to be stressed on this podcast, just because in my shame episode, I do talk about how, like you said, how uncomfortable that feeling made me feel and, you know, how, how it, um, like, uh, I spoke about how I was made to feel ashamed of a lot of things um, about myself, about the, like, um, I'm not sure what your religious background is, Sarah. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm not a religious person myself, but I was brought up in a religious background. And uh, a lot of religions like can place um, value on a woman's body. And uh, I think that's not just religion, to be fair. I think that it's also society as well. We place mm. value on a woman's body that, um, that either they are treated like property or like objects um, and we, uh, I was very much shamed about uh, my body, about the way I dress. And, um, also like would that, that shame came labels that were built up onto me about, um, like you said, uh, I was made to believe that I was a bad person. Um, I was made to believe that I was, um, I guess like, I, I always say like the, the devil, I was like the devil to, to the society I was living in. And I thought that that tied in really well with what you said about shame in the first episode. Um, do you want to elaborate a little bit or not? Have you, have you heard the episode? I think you said you were halfway through. I got, yeah, I got halfway through this one. I didn't, I didn't get to finish it, unfortunately. Um, I think, I, I mean, we, if we take women's bodies, if we take bodies generally, um, yes, you're right. There are lots, uh, lots of religious um, and across the board, again, there tends to be um, kind of rules like to fit in. You have to do certain things, act certain ways or um, chastity in particular in religion comes up as like a big thing. Mm. Um, but if you just even come back into sort of secular society, um, you know, people will tell you that you're not allowed to have short hair if you're a woman, you know, or you're not allowed to be fat or you've got to have... Um, you know, a certain proportion of your curves or mm. um, you've got to dress in a certain way. You know, if, if you're, if you're a woman, that, that means that, that a lot of people would argue that means you have to have certain genitalia and it doesn't. 
um, or it means that you have to dress a certain way um, and that you are dressing to attract other people. Mm. You, you know, you're kind of told you're not allowed to dress for yourself. Um, and if you live in a bigger body like I do, there's so much um, kind of console. Uh, what's the word? Sorry. There's so much um, concern trolling, you know. Oh, well, don't you want to think about your health? I'm thinking just fine about my health. Thank you very much. You know, how much <laughs> I weigh is none of your business. Um, but you get people who, yeah, it's not even coming from a religious place. It's just coming from, we have been told mm. this is what we need to look like or act like just because we are identified as a particular gender, for example. Um, and then there's these rules. Right? This is the box that that fits into. And if you fall outside of that box, you are to be, put in your place mm. um and again it's that sort of like I said I think originally it comes from this need to fit in um but shame's actually a terrible motivator for change it doesn't work there's studies and studies about this it doesn't make any difference you walk up to a fat person and you tell them that they should be thinner and that they're disgusting it will make literally no difference mm. to their like physical appearance it will destroy their mental health over time yeah, uh, I mean, I've 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 been fat shamed um, for sure mm. as well. Um, yeah, I I don't know if I'm I'm if I we spoke about this before, but I did lose a lot of weight, um, and I'm just thinking like, was shame the motivator there? Because I was fat shamed, but I think for me, what was actually my motivator was seeing pictures of myself and how much I've actually put on, and not not feeling comfortable with that because I'm I'm actually. I always wanted to be that person who could be comfortable in a bigger body, but I never was. <laughs> and it, it uh, maybe like, I'm not really sure if it was like shame that played a factor in that or the fact that I'm just a very tiny person. I'm five foot tall and I just didn't feel comfortable <laughs> in it. Um, so I don't know what exactly played a part in me wanting to be thinner was it shame or was it, but I love what you just said about uh, dressing, like we made to feel like we're dressing up to look good for other people. It's actually something I came to realize in this lockdown, actually, is that dressing up is actually for myself. It's not for other people because when the lockdown first started back in March, I didn't dress up and I was just like in my yoga pants and like, you know, hair not done, makeup not done. And I didn't, I did that for like, I think almost the first month. And then I started feeling really crappy and then I made an effort to at least once a week properly dress up for myself and I felt better and it's kind of my realizing moment that I'm doing this for me not for anyone else and that was a big moment but yeah um back to shame just talking about this in general is actually really making me so uncomfortable because it's such a nasty feeling isn't it and I love how you said it's not a motivating factor because it wasn't a motivating factor in, in my story of shame, which I discussed. Um, it, it made me very rebellious against whatever they were telling me about myself. You know, it, it had the opposite effect to what they wanted it to. So their intention was to get me to be a fully covered Muslim woman and to be very uh, modest. The word modest would be used so much mm -hmm. in my society. Um, and honestly, I am like the complete opposite. Um, I, I am humble in certain ways. I, I will say that. And I, I don't know if, if it's humble to actually say I am humble. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, I don't have the shame or the modesty for the things that they value as important. In fact, they keep trying to shame me and to, to get me to do that just made me the complete opposite. Um, I actually remember the first time I ever wore... Um, a mini dress and this was actually in, in Turkey in Istanbul when I when I moved away from my family and it was the first time I wore a dress with no pants and I did I felt naked it was it was like such a weird feeling for me and honestly now I wear like short shorts and mini skirts and everything mm -hmm. I'm so used to it but that first time was like a huge deal for me because my brain was trained so much to believe I was doing something shameful um, that it was like a huge deal to to get past that. Mm. Um, yeah, it, it's, that's amazing. Yeah, it's a difficult emotion, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. But a way of also saying I don't have to be controlled by shame. 
Yes. And, and that, that's exactly what I was going to say. For me, I think that shame is a controlling and a manipulative um, tool. Uh, and, and that's what it, that's the part it played in my life uh, for sure. Um, yeah. Like I really had to stop caring what certain people thought about me or think about me to just be able to live my life as, as it is. Cause yeah, I, I mean, but getting a bit away from the topic, but I just like, I just wanted to say like, it's, I think that it's very much a perspective based thing. What people think of you. Mm. So that is something I had to come to terms in my life. Like if certain people think I'm a bad person because I'm not doing X, Y, and Z, that's their perspective. That doesn't make it true. And I had to like separate what they think about me to what I think about me and kind of be like, that's their problem. If they think I'm a bad person. Um, If I know I'm not like physically harming them, I'm not like being intentionally mean to them. um, That that's their burden to carry, not mine. And it's a huge, a huge leap to get to that point in your life where you can separate the two. Yeah, for sure. Um, In, in therapy and particularly in CBT we do a lot around like thought challenging um of some of these ideas and you might start with well how do you even know these people definitely think this and then and some sometimes things will be whittled out of their pencil well, actually I don't know that people think this maybe nobody's thinking anything at all and and then you can come on to some of these where you know you know these people really well you know exactly what they've said to you you know that they think think these things and then the next question is so what <laughs> Does, does that matter? Does that mean you have to make yourself unhappy to fit what they want? Um, and sometimes the answer to that might be, actually, maybe I need to compromise, you know, uh, not necessarily about these issues, but about some, some thoughts that some people bring. But sometimes it's also about saying, well, yeah, you know what, if, if they think that, so what? Maybe, maybe their opinion doesn't really matter all that much. I love it. I'm going to like put a posted like, so what? <laughs> so what? <laughs> oh gosh. Yeah. No, I love it. Um, yeah. It, it, it's such a liberating and a free thing to do, to be able to do that, to say, so what? So what if they think that it doesn't make it true? Yeah. Um, and I, yeah, I think this is a good segue to get into the last question, which is a question I didn't actually understand. Um, <laughs> I know I posed it to you. I was like, it, the question is, what's your favorite therapy metaphor? And I'm like, what is a therapy metaphor? And probably, I probably know this, mm-hmm. but you do. Okay, <laughs> go for it. <laughs> so my first, the first thing I, when I read this, I, I think I even texted you back, didn't I? Going like, I can't answer this one. It's impossible. It's like asking me to choose my favorite book. <laughs> um, the, to be honest, the best therapy metaphors are actually the ones my clients come up with because they'll word something in such a way that just really resonates and really kind of um, explains immediately captures what they're what they're feeling or how they're trying to sort of portray something so I can't I can't say there's like one set perfect metaphor that's going to work for everybody and actually the best ones are usually the ones that people come up with themselves I talk in metaphors all the time um so I've picked one that I quite like doing, actually. So a therapy metaphor is a metaphor that we use in therapy to try and convey usually something a bit more complex into sort of a distilled version of like, so it makes sense. I need a metaphor to explain this because I'm explaining this really badly. I'm sorry. <laughs> so a really lovely one that I like to do, and I actually physically act this out with people, is when we're talking about their monster their anxiety monster or their shame monster or their thought monster or whatever it might be that's kind of you know in their ear telling them you're bad you can't do it etc etc so what i do is i get people literally to stand up and we're going to play tug of war and i say right i'm the anxiety monster or i'm the shame monster you know i'm all these thoughts that we've been talking about um and in between the two of us is like a great big pit of lava and we're going to play tug of war. And I give them usually a scarf because it's what I've got to hand. But I give them something to hold, like a, a rope, a bit of wool, um, usually just a scarf out of my bag. But anyway, so we'll stand there, both of us holding on to this scarf. Um, and I say, right, you've got this pit of lava in front of it. And I'm calling you all these names. What do you want to do? And people immediately say, oh, I want to pull you in. I say, OK. So they start tugging on, on the scarf. And I match them. 
So I don't pull any harder than they do. I just match their kind of level of tension. And I say, okay, I've matched you. What do you want to do now? And they went, well, I want to get rid of you. I'm going to pull harder. So they start pulling harder and I match them. And I say, how's this going for you? And they're like, well, what I really need is to sort of lean into this now, you know, dig my heels in, lean back, put all my weight into this so that I can pull you in to this, this pit so that you're gone forever. And I say, okay, well, put you back into it then and they pull harder and I pull harder and no one's moving okay no one's going anywhere however they're now putting in an awful lot of effort and I say to them like could you do anything else at this point could you make a cup of tea can you drive a car they're like no I've got to keep you know I've got to make sure that you're you're gonna go in this pit I said could you even hold a conversation with another person they're like no if they came in you know, if somebody came in right now and asked me a question, I'd be like, can you not see I'm busy? I'm trying to get this thing in, in, in this pit. Um, and we'll stand there, look, you know, quite tense, actually. And I say, what are your other options? And they say, I could put the rope down. Okay, should we try that? Should we put the rope down? And we put the scarf down. And I say, what's happened to your body? And they're like, oh, everything's dropped. Like my shoulders feel less tense. Like I can stand up again. I can move around. I said, could you do stuff? You know, could you have a conversation with somebody else? Could you go make a cup of tea? Could you drive a car? Yeah, I could do all of those things now. I said, but I still exist. I didn't end up in the pit. They're like, yeah, but I don't have to engage with you all the time. Like I can be there. The little anxiety monster can be there, but you can now go do whatever you want, even though I'm still present. Rather than spending your whole day fighting that monster trying to get rid of it, trying to say, I'm not going to feel these things. I'm not going to have these thoughts. You can put the rope down. And yeah, I still exist. And I'm still going to try and trick you into another game. Cooey, I still don't think you're very good at stuff. And you might pick the rope back up again, because we all do it. But actually, once you realise you can put it down and how much better it feels to put it down, you've got a chance of doing something else. Wow. That so that's my favorite. <laughs> yeah, that must be a very powerful moment. Um, yeah, that that's amazing. I love that. And I, I I actually just been thinking this whole time. You also have to be really strong. What if you have like a client that's like some sort of like <laughs> wrestler or bodybuilder? <laughs> okay, so we do agree not to literally pull each other over. Sure. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Uh, and and, and my, my other first thought when you started was, um, what if you said you were someone's monster and they decided to punch you in the face? <laughs> <laughs> so we're in a game. There's, there's rules to a tug of war, okay, right? Okay. <laughs> so we're, we're, we're going to play tug of war. This is the way you're allowed to try and hurt me is to pull me into this pit of lava. Um, <laughs> and But people do. They, they, they grasp it automatically. It, without me having to do this big wordy explanation they get it immediately mm. i want rid of you i'm gonna pull oh hang on a minute i've been here you know we've been stood here for five minutes now and you've not gone anywhere maybe i need to do something else amazing that's great yeah that's really cool i think like the one thing that i've done in therapy with uh, my therapist was and i think this is a common one that we touched on maybe in the first episode um is where they ask you well, my therapist made me sit in a chair and she put two chairs out next to me. I was like to speak to my younger self and like my teenage self as myself now. And that was quite, uh, quite, quite, it revealed, relieved, revealed a lot of things to me about myself. Um, and especially like for me as to like how, where all my protectiveness comes from and my, my motherly instinct comes from is from being that person for my younger self. And that, that was who I was trying to protect my whole life and who I still like could be very guarded about protecting myself. It's comes from having done it all my life. It was quite a revelation. So yeah, these therapy metaphors are quite uh, powerful, I guess. They are. Um, and I love the ones where you actually have to get up and do something. Because yeah. there's just something extra about seeing it play out mm. in that way. Definitely. Well, Sarah, I have to say thank you again so much. It's been amazing having you on again. And um, 
thank you so much for your time and the effort you put into this. And I'm sure that our listeners out there have really benefited from everything that you have shared with us today. So thanks again. And uh, it was great to have you. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of Refreshingly Human with myself, Hannah Pillow. It's been great having you join me today. If you liked my content, please do share it with a friend you think would find it interesting and subscribe to the show as well. I would love to have you listening in to many episodes to come. You can find me on the socials. I'm on Facebook as Refreshingly Human and Instagram as Hannah Pillow. See you next time.